Halachic opinions by, say, the Rambam, Vilna Gaon, or Chazonish gain their authority simply from a universal recognition that their greatness and vast command of every aspect of Torah law, compared to our own, outweighs our opinion. This does not derive from any special mitzvah, still less from any belief that they enjoyed metaphysical inspiration. We are not sinners if we dispute their views, merely arrogant fools. If we do decide to accept the halachic decisions of the poskim in each generation, then by the same token, we should grant the poskim the same authority in every area, since their greatness in Torah enables them to make better decisions than we can make. We should consult them in any case where Das Torah is generally consulted. So we may agree or disagree with the non-halachic decisions of the Chavetz Chaim, Rav Chaim Brisker, or Rav Chaim Ozer, just as we may agree or disagree with their halachic decisions. There is no difference between one and the other. However, by the same token, there is no difference in the degree of one's folly in either instance. These are the words from Harav Aaron Feldman from his book, The Eye of the Storm, in a chapter entitled, Rabbinic Authority. But after the events of the past month, can we really accept that this ideology of Das Torah is believable? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The past month has given many people who believe in a concept often called Dat Torah pause, or at least the recognition that rabbinic authority in areas outside the four cubits of Jewish law may be, in its current iteration, somewhat wanting. I'm guessing that this will not end up being a long episode. It certainly will not be an exploration of the halachic background to rabbinic authority, which, for the record... I accept as halachically normative. I even gave a shear a few years ago defending the concepts of Das Torah and Emunat Chachamim, trust in the sages, at least in certain contexts. So this is not going to be a careful exposition of the halachic issues associated with Das Torah, accepting the authority of sages. Instead, I'm going to offer a few problems that, it seems to me, are associated with Das Torah as the concept is implemented in this year of 2022. I really hope that people will contact me to let me know what they think about what I say, whether you agree or disagree. You can either email me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com, or even better, comment on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. One thing I guarantee, however, is that this talk will be incomplete. It's some scattered reflections, not a comprehensive treatment of a very important and big subject. For that reason, I expect to follow up with additional episodes dealing with the same idea from different perspectives. Before we begin, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in 
one day or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. That Torah, as it's currently understood by many people, is the belief that Gedolei Torah, great Torah sages, have unusual insight in areas beyond halacha and hashkafa, Jewish law and Jewish thought, and therefore a person should or even must ask their opinion before doing, well, sometimes anything. Minimally, communal matters that are not halachic issues per se require consultation with the authorities before moving forward. Why must we listen to them? According to many, including the great Rav Eliyahu Dessler's Zetzal, it's because they possess a type of Ruach HaKodesh, that is, divinely inspired, almost prophetic inspiration. Despite the claims to the contrary, Rav Dessler explicitly uses the term Ruach HaKodesh. If someone wants to claim that he did not mean this literally, it's that person's responsibility to demonstrate why. Others say that it's not a matter of heavenly inspiration, but instead a recognition that their Torah knowledge has so refined their intellects that they possess insight that others simply don't, even in areas where they might not be considered experts. Why do we have to ask them? Either because the Torah demands it, or because it would simply be foolish not to do so. But whatever the reasoning, the result is that the Orthodox community, and in some cases individuals, must ask its Gedolei Torah how they should act in many different circumstances. As I said, let's leave behind the halachic question of whether this is true or not. I want to argue that even if someone accepts the importance of consulting with Gedolei Torah in theory, the concept has nonetheless been warped beyond recognition. And finally, please remember that I am not talking about all Gedolei Torah. There are thankfully Gedolim who do not fall into the categories I'm about to describe. I am, however, speaking about many of those who are considered Gedolei Torah and whose advice is sought as Dat Torah. And I'm certainly not questioning their Torah knowledge. I am, however, questioning their ability to render decisions in areas where they are not expert. The first problem of Dat Torah was articulated by Harav Aaron Lichtenstein Zatzal, who argued that too often the great sages to whom we turn for Dat Torah have Torah, but sadly not Dat. Dat, in his conception, can be broadly defined as common sense, a real understanding of both the questioner and the situation being presented, and an honest recognition of whether or not he is qualified to answer the question. Nowadays, Rav Lichtenstein said, there are few rabbis like Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach Zatzal, who possessed all three elements of Dat and wasn't afraid to say, I don't know. Rav Aron asserts that if all Gedolim were like Rav Shlomo Zalman, he would have no opposition to Dat Torah. Sadly, they're not. Too often, they lack all three elements of Dat, common sense, real knowledge of the person asking the question, and expertise in the area being asked. Rav Aaron also cites the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, which says that judges on the Sanhedrin should be proficient in 70 languages. Now, unless we believe that they were granted this ability from on high through a miracle, this means that those judges were educated outside the realm of Torah alone. So let's apply this to many of those who are called Gedolim today. They definitely do not have outside knowledge from secular studies, which they often adamantly reject. And even if we say that the Gemara means that the great Talmudei Chachamim got their knowledge miraculously, does anyone believe that the Gedolim today, who reject secular studies, know more than the experts that they know 70 languages? If members of the Sanhedrin were granted 
extrasensory knowledge by God, I don't think that's true of the people often called the voice of Dat Torah today. Lack of Dat was painfully obvious in some of the responses to the Chaim Walder situation, where the initial reaction was to say that those who reported Walder's crimes were worse than Walder himself. Can anyone truly believe this reflects common sense, that this reflects an intimate knowledge of the situation? And this is merely one example of many. A second issue is the fact that many of the rabbis now who are consulted for Dat Torah are completely isolated from the community at large. Very often, they're ivory tower scholars with amazing knowledge of Torah, but limited interaction with their followers beyond a small circle that's deemed worthy of coming close to them. For Moshe Feinstein, Zatzal used to receive a call every Arab Shabbat from a local woman living in the Lower East Side near him who asked him what time candlelighting was. He was the local rabbi, and he knew what was happening with those who looked to him for guidance. Rav Salvechik Zatzal used to spend the time between Mincha and Mariv every Shabbat afternoon answering questions from anyone who wanted to ask a question. The regular Brookline, Massachusetts shulgoers were in regular contact with this Gadol Batorah. Compare that with the gatekeepers who determine who gets to talk to the Gdolim and when that's so common nowadays. The ways of Rav Moshe and Rav Soloveitchik are the way I believe it has been and should be. But now we have the unique situation where many Gdolim are insulated from the problems of Jews, both individually and communally. They know about it based on what they're told by their advisors, not based on first-hand knowledge. How can a Gadol Batorah make communal policy when he is not in true contact with community members, when he is not in touch with their joys and sorrows, with their real lives? The third problem I noticed is a painful reality, which I am hesitant to mention, but honesty compels me to do so. As I mentioned during my conversation with Rabbi Yosef Blau two weeks ago, the Gemara says that someone who is elderly, according to the Rambam, this means very old, should not be a member of the Sanhedrin. Too often, the people regarded as gedolim are indeed extremely old. This does not mean, of course, that they should simply retire. But I question whether Halakha would accept them as the leader. Does it make any sense that over and over and over, the people who are appointed, so to speak, as the gedolim are people who have, frankly, passed their prime years of potential leadership? I assert that Halakha would not accept this, and neither should we. Fourth, I think that giving too much responsibility to gedolim can take away responsibility that rightly should belong to us. When every major decision must be approved or funneled through the perspective of Gedolim, we may inhibit our right and responsibility to think and act for ourselves when we see something that's wrong. Let's not pretend that we can figure everything out for ourselves, of course. We do need to consult with experts in areas where we're not proficient. I go to a doctor for medical advice, and I consult Rabbeim when there are questions in Jewish law to which I don't know the answer. But sometimes I fear that people sacrifice their moral sense based on the assumption that Gedolim know better. And sometimes they do. But we can't turn off our own moral inclinations entirely and simply say that whatever those greater than us in halachic knowledge say is always and automatically more ethical and more moral. Sometimes we need to acknowledge that something is amiss. I've quoted the following passage written by Rav Soloveitchik many times, and I'm going to do so again now. It's from his essay, The Community first published in 1978. In discussing why God created man as an individual, that is, levado, as lonely man, the Rav says that, lonely man is free. Social man is bound by many rules and ordinances. God willed man to be free. Man is required from time to time to defy the world, to replace the old and obsolete with the new and relevant. Only lonely man is capable of casting off the harness of bondage to society. 
Who was Abraham? Who was Elijah? Who were the prophets? People who dared rebuke society in order to destroy the status quo and replace it with a new social order. The Levado awareness is the root of heroic defiance. Heroism is the central category in practical Judaism. The Torah wanted the Jew to live heroically, to rebuke, reproach, condemn whenever society is wrong and unfair. The Levado gives the Jew the heroic arrogance which makes it possible for him to be different. Lonely man is a courageous man. He is a protester. He fears nobody. Whereas social man is a compromiser, a peacemaker, and at times a coward. At first man had to be created Levado alone. For otherwise, he would have lacked the courage or the heroic quality to stand up and to protest, to act like Abraham, who took the axe and shattered the idols which his own father had manufactured. I assert that listening to Talmudei Chachamim is often very praiseworthy. Sacrificing your heroism and willingness to protest on the altar of Gadol worship is a violation of what the Rav calls the central category in practical Judaism. And this leads to the fifth and perhaps most painful problem that I have with that Torah today, the facts and reality that we see ourselves. We all know by now the painful reality of the Walder case, but that's certainly not where it ends. Let's talk just for a minute about the religious political parties which follow the leadership of Gedolim, at least in theory. Look at the Shas party in Israel, run by Aryeh Deri. He was in jail for financial crimes before and then was put back in charge of the party. Now he again signed a letter admitting to financial crimes, a plea deal. And part of this plea deal is that he has to resign from the Knesset. But the Shas party leadership says that he'll still run the party from the outside. Excuse me, where are the Gedolim who run this party? Either they're quietly protesting this horrible Chilol Hashem, a party leader who repeatedly is convicted of financial crimes. And despite those quiet protests, the party is ignoring them, which shows that their alleged following of Dat Torah is a sham. Or even worse, the Gedolim that run the Shas party accept it. They accept the person running their party is a person who repeatedly has violated the law, has violated ethics for personal gain. And even if they are quietly protesting, why not say so out loud? Why not say, I will not be part of a council of Torah sages that accepts such a blatant violation of Torah norms and desecrates the name of heaven? And I could make the same accusation against the rabbis associated with other religious parties too. With all due respect to the Gedolim who are advising the Shas party, I cannot understand, I cannot understand how they don't get up and say, we cannot be associated with a party that is run by someone convicted of financial crimes. Where are the ethics? Where are the morals? Where is the leadership? And if someone were to argue that that's the nature of politics, that you have to do some dirty work, well, then that means that maybe religious parties should not be involved in politics. If politics means violating the Torah, then apparently you can't be involved. I've also heard so many times that rabbis will hear of a good initiative in whatever area and then contact the person leading this initiative quietly to say he agrees, but please don't use his name. Is this leadership or is this the cowardice that Rav Salvechik mentioned? If this is not Torah, why do we see so much moral cowardice? Why do we know that some of what we hear is morally outrageous and we accept it because it's Das Torah? History is showing us that Dat Torah, as it's currently understood, is simply, in these cases, not working at all. In fact, at times, it could be Mechalel Shem Shemaim, desecrating the name of heaven. And there's another problem, on top of everything that I've said. When a rabbi is seen as being an oracle of sorts, then when he's wrong, he or his followers naturally need to cover it up. 
This is very upsetting to discuss. But in the wake of the Walter case, we all saw situations of revisionist history where mistakes were presented either by the person himself or by those defending him as the opposite of what actually happened. Let me give one of numerous examples. This one, something that somebody wrote immediately after Walter's suicide, and then a follow-up clarification. Rav Yoshua Eichenstein initially came out with a statement that read in part, this is my translation, even if there is a teacher who has an opinion in the Walter matter, it is an obligation to teach the children only Das Torah and to cry out about how dangerous it is to embarrass one's friend in public and to tell them that there are bad people who are moti shame ra about him. That means they lied about Walder and publicized in all places this bad name until they caused him to be ashamed to show his face outside and they caused him to be emotionally sick until he killed himself and to explain to the children in a clear manner that this is called murder and the emphasis should entirely be on the wrong done to him that they publicized it and violated a Torah prohibition. A few days later, Rav Yoshua Eichenstein issued a clarification. It says at the end, again my own translation, Since there are some who mistakenly understood that I have a hint of forgiveness toward the offender, I want to clarify explicitly that I recognize the destructive nature of abuse, and it's obvious that victims should go to anyone who can help, and there is no concern about Lashon Hara. Now, we need to honestly compare this clarification to his original statement. Remember, he said, teachers must cry out about how dangerous it is to embarrass someone in public and tell students that bad people, Anashim Ra'im, were Mosi Shemra and publicized this bad name in all places until he was embarrassed to show his face outside and caused him to become emotionally ill to the point that he killed himself and to explain to the children in a clear manner that this is called murder. With all due respect to Rav Eichenstein, how can he claim in his second statement that people misunderstood him? He explicitly said that those who publicized it are Anashim Ra'im, bad people who murdered him, even though his later statement asserts that victims should go to anyone who can help. The people who publicized Walder's evil are the people who could help since no one inside the community was willing or able to do anything. So are they evil or not? Additionally, Rav Eichenstein explicitly said in his first statement that the bad people were Mosi Shemra, which means that they were publicizing something that's false. In the second statement, he says that he has no sympathy for the offender. How can he say that people misunderstood him in thinking that he had sympathy? By saying that it was Mosi Shemra, he was claiming that the charges brought against Walder were false. Readers didn't mistakenly detect sympathy for the offender. He explicitly said that the charges weren't true. You see, it's not enough to say the right things eventually. When the wrong things you said initially were harmful, and frankly, someone apparently died as a result of statements like that one, there needs to be a request for forgiveness. And even without that, how can he claim that he's saying the same thing when it's clear that he's saying something that's very different? I say this reluctantly, but I say it firmly. As appropriate as his second statement is, it also included a self-justifying defensive statement that this is what he meant all along. And that's false. Why does it matter? Who cares if they change history as long as they come out on the right side in the end? Because it's not about Walter per se. It's not entirely about abuse per se. It's about structures of authority that are not equipped to handle cases like this, but believe that they are. And until they can admit error and say, I was wrong, the same thing's going to happen again and again. Let me repeat that. It's going to keep on happening as long as there's a sense that the gedolim are infallible 
as long as the Gedolim continue the charade by refusing to say, Hatati, I sinned, or at least, I was incorrect. I want to conclude with something that was written by Professor Lawrence Kaplan of McGill University about this revisionism. He wrote a well-known essay entitled, Dat Torah, A Modern Conception of Rabbinic Authority, and it includes a chilling coda, which he gave me permission to quote in full. He asked me to tell listeners, in order to avoid any confusion, that he is not criticizing the Belzer Rebbe, but rather his biographers. Here is what Professor Kaplan wrote. On January 17, 1944, the Belzer Rebbe, Rav Aaron Rokeach, together with his brother Rav Mordechai, after having escaped in May 1943 from the ghetto of Bochnia in western Galatia to Hungary, left Budapest for the land of Israel, using immigration certificates reserved for veteran Zionists. One day earlier, Rav Mordechai, with the approval and as the agent of his brother, delivered a major farewell sermon in the great hall of the Kahal Yireim of Budapest, in the presence of a large audience of thousands of Jews, together with great rabbinic scholars and the leaders and prominent men of the city and country. This sermon was printed as a special brochure, Haderach, on February 7, 1944, and was reprinted about a month later, quote, since the first printing had sold out in a few days, and from all camps and quarters, requests are forthcoming for Haderach. At about the same time as the second printing, an abridged version of the sermon was published under the title Masmiach Yeshua, The Flowering of Redemption. For as the publisher stated, quote, its content befits its name, for this entire farewell address is filled with promises for the future and encouragement for the present. And we, believers, the children of believers, are certain that the promises of the tzaddik, the Gad al-Hador, the Belzer Rebbe, will be fulfilled for us. And certainly it has been revealed to him from heaven that the end of our troubles is nigh. In the sermon, Rav Mordechai deals with the concern raised by many people of weak hope and faith that the Nazi destruction of Polish and Galician Jewry, as well as the Jewry of other lands, disproved the anti-Zionist policies of the Hasidic and non-Hasidic separatist Orthodox leaders and proved the Zionists to be correct. Quote, For had our leaders, the Gdole Yisrael and Tzadikei Hador, adopted another approach, and had they anticipated the evil times that have befallen the world and taken care for the future and survival of the nation as did others, and had they occupied themselves with its salvation, then certainly many would have been spared extinction and the sword of the destroyer. Rav Mordechai admits that on the surface, this argument would seem to be borne out by the historical events. However, he claims, it is precisely this apparent substantiation of the Zionist argument that is, in truth, a divine trial sent by God to test the faith of the believer. For historically, there have been two types of Jewish leadership. The true leadership of Gedol Israel and Tzadikei Hador, and the false leadership of the priests of Baal, its present incarnation being the Zionist leaders. To criticize then, in any way, the wisdom or policies of the true leaders, and to imply that the false leaders on a particular issue may have been more far-seeing, is to side with the priests of Baal and to desecrate the sancta of Israel. Rav Mordechai, therefore, condemns those heretics, and even those who are simply led astray, all of whom, quote, criticize the Tzadikei Hador in a time of trouble. Rather, we have not to do but rely on our Father in Heaven and to strengthen our belief in Him, may He be blessed, and our belief in the Tzaddikim. In this part of the sermon then, Rav Mordechai, as Rav Dessler would do at a later date, uses the doctrine of Das Torah, in his case, a Hasidic version of the doctrine, to defend the Gedolim and Tzaddikim against the accusation that, as a result of their anti-Zionist policies, they had not done enough to encourage Jewish emigration from Europe to the land of Israel. Of particular interest, however, is the next part of Rav Mordechai's sermon, the part containing, quote, the promises of the tzaddik, to which the publisher of Masmiach Yeshua referred. 
Here, in a passage of 22 lines, a passage which, because of its importance, appeared in the second printing in boldface, Rav Mordechai responds to the accusation that he and his brother were abandoning their flock in a time of trouble. Already in October 1943, Rav Yisachar Teichtel, writing in Budapest, described in his work Eim Habadim Smecha, quote, the fear and dread that hangs over us when all the Admorim of our country are attempting to flee to the land of Israel for fear of the danger of the oppressor. And they do not take into account the fact that by so acting, they are causing the spirits of the Jews to sink when they hear the multitude murmuring, the Rebbe's are fleeing, and what will be with us? This is how Rav Mordechai responded. I wish to inform and enlighten you concerning the murmurings of many who are afraid and seized with trembling and worried about the future. They are saying that perhaps, heaven forbid, some danger is hanging over the land and that my brother, the tzaddik of the generation Shlita, sees the future and for that reason is traveling to the land of Israel. For it is there that God ordained the blessing and I will give peace in the land. He therefore is going to a place of rest and tranquility and has left us, heaven forbid, to sorrow. What will be our end? Who will protect us? Who will save us? Who will pray for us and intercede on our behalf? Therefore, it is my obligation to let you know, my dear colleagues, sages of Hungary, the truth, that whoever is close to and a member of the circle of my brother, Slita, knows for certain that he is not going in flight or running away in haste, as if he wished to flee from here. Rather, his entire longing and desire are to ascend to the Holy Land, which is sanctified with ten levels of holiness. And I know that for a long time he has been yearning greatly for the land of Israel. His heart's desire and the yearning of his holy soul are to ascend to the city of God, there to arouse God's mercy and grace on the entire community, that they should know no more sorrow. And the remaining camp will be spared, and soon there will be fulfilled, quote, I will cut off the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be exalted. And this is alluded to in the verse. And he saw the resting place, that it was good, and the land, that it was delightful. It would seem the intention of the verse is, and he saw the resting place, meaning the tzaddik sees that rest and tranquility will descend upon the inhabitants of this land, meaning Hungary, that it was good, meaning that the tzaddik sees that good and all good and only good and grace will befall our Jewish brethren, the inhabitants of this land, meaning Hungary. And the land, the reason why the tzaddik desires to ascend to and settle in the land, for it is delightful, for it is there that the supernal delight dwells. End quote. On March 19th, 1944, just over two months after the farewell sermon in which the tzaddik had foreseen that, quote, good and all good and only good will befall our Jewish brethren, the inhabitants of this land, and one month after the abridged version of the sermon, Masmiach Yeshua was printed, one month after the publisher of the abridged version stated, quote, we believers, the children of believers, are certain that the promises of the tzaddik and Gadol Hador will be fulfilled for us, the Germans occupied Hungary. On May 14th, Less than four months after the farewell sermon, the mass deportations of Hungarian Jews to the extermination camps began. Toward the end of May, Rebetzin Chaya Halberstam, the widow of Rav Avram Halberstam, the Admor of Strupkov, was deported from Kasho to Auschwitz. There she and her son were murdered on May 25th. Shortly before her death, Asandr Komando, who himself later perished, recorded her last words. Quote, I see the end of Hungarian Jewry. The government had permitted large sections of the Jewish community to flee. The people asked the advice of the Admorim, and they always reassured them. The Belzer Rebbe said that Hungary would only endure anxiety. And now the bitter hour has come, when the Jews can no longer save themselves. Indeed, heaven concealed this fate from them, but they themselves fled at the last moment to the land of Israel. They saved their own lives, but left the people as sheep for slaughter. 
In the last moments of my life, I set my plea before you that you pardon them for this great Chil Hashem. In 1967, two Hasidic writers, Rabbis Betzalel Landau and Natan Ortner, in their book Harav HaKadosh Bells, reprinted the entire farewell sermon of Rav Mordechai, with the exception of this entire 22-line passage. In place of this passage, they included the following comment. Here the Gaon and Tzadik, the Rava Bilgorai, Rav Mordechai, explained the desire of his brother, the Holy Gaon, to ascend to the land of Israel based on the verse, and he saw the resting place that it was good and the land that it was delightful. This convenient omission has allowed the authorized Hasidic historians of the Belzer dynasty to write how the Rebbe and his brother, quote, on more than one occasion, warned the Jews of Hungary not to deceive themselves with illusions and not to be at ease regarding their situation. The Polish experience demonstrated that the Nazi horror was just as dangerous in its time of downfall as it was in its time of triumph, end quote. Indeed, on one occasion, Rav Mordechai, according to one Hasidic historian, even warned a delegation representing a Hungarian Orthodox community, quote, know that the Germans are right behind us and any day we must be afraid of a German invasion. However, this historian continues, the Jews of Hungary did not wish to understand and refused to engage in an accounting of their future. That's the passage from Professor Lawrence Kaplan, and I thank him for letting me quote it in full. Note what's going on here. In those 22 lines, Rav Mordechai reassured the Jews of his community in Hungary that everything would be okay. Later on, the biographers took out those lines and said, here, Rav Mordechai just explained why his brother wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael without mentioning the reassurances. And then, even further on in history, biographers said, they warned the Jews, but the Jews refused to listen, 180 degrees from what it was originally. This is revisionist history, and this is a problem which we cannot and dare not ignore. What's going to happen with that Torah in the future is an open question. But we can no longer blindly accept the authority of Gedolim just because people tell us that they are the people we need to listen to. They are people who cannot make a mistake, people who are inevitably more right than we are. We also cannot accept revisionist history, and we need to ensure that the Gedolim whose advice we eagerly seek are those who have real dot those who are not isolated from the larger Jewish community, those who are at the height of their intellectual and moral powers. We need to be heroic by not sacrificing our own moral sense in every case on the altars of worship of human beings, no matter how great they are in Torah knowledge. It's time for heroism, and sometimes that means standing up and rejecting positions that are untenable, even if they were stated by Torah scholars. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? 
Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.